I have two specific materials that I'm using today that I'm kind of referencing, but I'm using material out of. If you're interested in a thick theological, amazing read, I can say that because I've read it. The Mission of God by Christopher Wright is a resource that I'm using today. Um, if you want to take a look at it, I can let you. And then there's some other pieces from Alan Hirsch, The Forgotten Ways. Um, so we'll be referencing those two very polar opposite <laughs> items to talk about the mission of God in Romans today. So, all right, so let's start Romans 7, 1 through 4. Do you have your Bibles out? Or you can take a look up here at this beautiful screen. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, can we apply this to here? My brothers, you also have died to the law the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order, here's our why, that we may bear the fruit of God. So last week we began, we, we kind of walked you through something that probably for some of you thought, that's crazy. Uh, you know, you go through and you're like, where are they getting this from? What, what, I don't even understand. We talked about the Exodus. We're going to recap that for you in just a few minutes. But what I want to do is I want to show you uh, something. I, I was, because sometimes I feel like people hear things and they're like, where does any of that even come from? Uh, and I, but I want to show you this idea. It's actually a very universally understood idea. And that is the Exodus as a parallel to all of the things that we've been describing. Uh, on Monday morning, I was, on, I was just online, and I was scrolling through in the Gospel Coalition, which is another uh, kind of Bible site. They posted an article uh, by Tim Keller, uh, and, and I found it to be incredibly timely. Uh, and it, the article was about the Exodus, and, and uh, what it said in it was, I'm just going to read it for you, but it said uh, in it that if there's one Old Testament passage, if there's one passage in the entire Old Testament that invites us to read this passage in a Christ-centered way as a paradigm of Christ's salvation, it is the story of the Exodus. And like we've been teaching you guys that, right? How every single bit of that story always seems to be pointing to something greater. It points to something more. And I'm going to read you this quote that he kind of that framed his life when he was a lot younger. Uh, uh, it was a story of when Tim Keller was in Bible school. And he, he says this, he says, I'll never forget Nearly 40 years ago, sitting in R.C. Sproul's living room in Stallstown, Pennsylvania, and Alec Motyer, a British Old Testament scholar who I had never heard of, was visiting. And on the floor was a bunch of others, of other college and seminary students. And Sproul said to Motyer, tell us about the connection between the Old and the New Testaments. And Motyer replied something like this. Think about it. Think of what an Israelite would say if they, on the way to Canaan after passing through the Red Sea. If you ask an Israelite, who are you? He might reply, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb. We talked about that with the Passover a few weeks, a, few, a couple months ago now. I took shelter under the blood of the lamb. And our mediator led us out and we crossed over. Now we're on our way to the promised land, but we're not there yet. But he has given us his law which we're going to talk about today, to make us a community. 
And he's given us a tabernacle because we must live in grace, by for, live by grace and by forgiveness. And he is present in our midst and he will stay with us until we arrive home. That's exactly what a Christian says almost word for word. And Tim Keller ended this by saying, and my 23-year-old self thought, huh, interesting. It's fascinating, isn't it? This story is so central to everything that it means to be human. It's so central to everything that it means to be a Christian. It's, it's so central, in fact, that, uh, for instance, our daughter Millie, she goes to a school. It's not a Christian school. She goes to a Waldorf school. Uh, and oh, even Waldorf. The Waldorf School. The Waldorf School <laughs> in, for Detroit. And so uh, even there, for her third grade, uh, for the, she just finished third grade. In the entire year of third grade, the main thing they studied was the Exodus, the Exodus. and the story of the Exodus. And why did they do that? It's just this beautiful parallel of there's this, there's, there's a few things that happen in, at the age nine, okay? So if you have a nine-year-old or have had a nine-year-old or know a nine-year-old, you might be like, oh, wow, um, this is a thing. So in the age nine, it's, they directly like parallel what they're going through with the Exodus, which is just like, how do you even do that? How do you pull that off? Um, so here's some concepts. That what's happening in the nine-year-old is that there's development within the individual. Okay, so in the story of the Exodus, there's this nation that's drawn out of, they're the slaves that serve another nation, and they're drawn out, and now they have to become an individual nation, right? So there's this development of like, who are we in this world where we used to be almost essentially like part of this other family of nations, and now we are our own person. So there's this discovery of the self, and that's totally happening in the Exodus. And then all the wandering, there's the development of the individual within the social context. So as you figure out who you are, who are you amongst your peers? So this is the same thing that's happening in the Exodus. They're establishing as a nation, and then they're trying to figure out what's our like, goal, what's our purpose, and who are we to the other nations? Are we just the slaves that escaped? Are we just the wandering sheep out in the exile? So just this lostness of who am I, looking to where do I find out who I am? And then there's this fourth, the third thing, the social comparison. And this is sort of um, this is where the ethics come in and you sort of start to see the law and as they learn about the law and what God's saying, let's be like this. Yeah. So, I mean, as your child is learning like what to do and what's like nice to say and what's a bully to say or whatever, um, learning how to act in a social context and that's really like spot on. Um, and then there's this, this last element um, this, that they, it requires this like concrete thing so we have the development of a nation, the nation among the nations. Then what do we look like compared to you? And how, does, how do our ethics, how are they different than the ethics of the other nations? And who are we because of that, this identity thing? And that comes through this concrete thing of the law. So there's lots of pieces here coming that the law, it's like, we're free from the law. Don't worry about the law. But we want to talk today about how the law is a good thing and yeah. how the Red Sea, it, but, well, it's... So, so last week we talked through this passage in, uh, about the Exodus and about how within the Exodus what happened was, what did they do? They, they left, we, we kind of did the parallel to sin and to baptism and how uh, Egypt was pursuing Israel, right? And Israel was leaving, left behind a life of bondage, a life of slavery, a life of oppression. And then we said, how, we explained how Egypt kind of represents that life, that former life that after, so then Israel comes to the, the Red Sea and then the sea parts. And then Israel goes through the sea, so they go through the water, and then the, but then the enemy yeah, the, comes in behind them, 
And God says, I will be honored by this whole thing through the enemy. The enemy comes in and the Red Sea collapses over that enemy and destroys. And so we've paralleled this with sin. Paul has done this. This is very theological. We've paralleled this that when the Red Sea crashes in, you are no longer under the power and authority of this slavery to sin. The, the nation was no longer under the power and authority of this, this other nation. They were now their own, their yes. own thing out from this sin, out from this enemy. Right. And the reason that all of that matters is because that, what the, the imagery you get there is that of something dying that needed to die so that something else could be birthed, so that we could have a new life, a new, uh, and that, that's on the other side of the, of, the, um, of, the, of the waters crashing. Now, here's why this really matters to this passage. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk about this passage again. Like we, we, most people read this passage, they think, is this passage talking about divorce? Because he starts talking about divorce in this passage. And he talks about people who get divorced and who people who, how you, and he talks about a law. And what's it saying? What does it say? So this is what it says in, in verse uh, two. It says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if, uh, she, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'd be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. Now, it's always difficult for us to address difficult passages that, that people tend to weaponize. And this is actually one of those passages that people tend to weaponize because what it does is, it, is they, can, they can take this passage in isolation just saying that one part. And you can say, this is a very clear thing. If you ever have been divorced and then you ever get remarried, then it says you committed adultery. But that's actually not at all... Take a deep breath. What he's trying to say here. Therefore. Is, yeah. Do you see verse 4 how it says, therefore? Likewise, maybe is what it says, different versions. Likewise. Can we apply this? Remember that? How do we apply this? This is clear, really clear Old Testament covenant language. We're talking about the marriage, the ketubah, the Torah, all the things in the Old Testament that God parallels. He uses this clear covenant language of marriage to talk about his covenant, the old covenant. I hope I'm not losing you in all these terms. The old covenant between his people, Israel, and now all of us in the new covenant, and God and Jesus and all the things. So the likewise, and we'll get into this more in a minute, but it says likewise, just like that law that you know, because again, he uses a law that they know. He says, like that law that you know, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, so you may belong to Jesus. So here's the big idea, and this is the reason why this is very important. It's actually very, very significant. Um, we're so, so like we, we, we know this passage, right? And I'm just going to say this to you briefly. I want to talk just for like a half a second about, about the concept of divorce. We're not going to talk about this for very long, but I really feel like we need to do this. Um, obviously, that's not, the, that's not what God intends for marriage. We already know that. But here's the thing. Uh, we don't always know what goes on behind closed doors. We don't always know what goes on behind the, behind the scenes. And it's very quick for Christians a lot of times to judge and make judgments about situations as they're happening. And it becomes, hey, why are we doing this? And there's, there's a passage in Malachi and it talks about how God hates divorce. And that's also another weaponized verse. And I, well, let me show you why this is a very weaponized verse. Because when you actually read the story of the Exodus, the story of the Exodus, you go through the sea and then you land at this place, Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, you get this beautiful moment in which God gives the Ten Commandments to Israel. And what happens in that moment is he literally it parallels that of a marriage proposal and a wedding. So literally, the language used in Exodus to God propose, to God giving the Ten Commandments to Israel is actually that of God saying, I want to marry you, Israel. 
Then later on in the Old Testament, you see Israel not being faithful to that, Israel being unfaithful, unfaithful, and you actually see God issuing Israel a certificate of divorce. So when you hear passages like, hey, God hates divorce, it becomes very easy to be like, oh, see, you shouldn't, God hates you because you did this. Well, actually, God hates divorce because God's actually been through a divorce. God's actually felt what it feels like to be broken, to have somebody hurt you in that way, to have a relationship be so severed that you cannot bring any life to it. So, but the difference is, is God then, he does pursue again. And he does pursue again. And the reason I say that is this, we did a wedding uh, yesterday. Uh, we did a wedding for somebody. Beautiful in the, wedding. A beautiful wedding. And uh, the, 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 it, the groom... And, it, and the bride had a daughter from a previous marriage. Uh, the, the groom didn't, just the bride did. And this, is what ha- and this was one of the most powerful moments that I've ever seen at, in a wedding. Like the, like what, the photographer was oh, crying. The photographer she couldn't even take pictures. She's like wiping her eyes and everybody's <laughs> weeping. And everybody after was like, I did not know that God could speak in that kind of scenario like that. This is a complete representation of the love of Jesus yeah. and the love of God. What happened was they did the ring exchange. And then, uh, and, and, you know, they did, the, they did the thing. They say their vows. They exchanged rings. And then out of nowhere, I mean, we knew the secret, but uh, she didn't. He then calls up her daughter. And he, he brings uh, the daughter on the stage and he presents her a ring. And he commits to her and to this family in such a way that he says, you know what, I will now be that, I will be at every, I mean, he was literally, I, I should have played you guys the thing. It was so powerful. It was like, I'll be at every recital. I'll be there for your life. I will be there when you're standing here in this day. I'll be there to knock out the first guy who wants to date you. I'll be, like, it was, it was, it was, it was the greatest reflection. I've, like, it, it, it was the perfect example of how God would respond to a moment like that. To somebody who you see a broken situation and yet you step into that situation and you say, I want this. I want to bring healing and health and life to this. And it's very easy to read a passage like this and to just write it off because you think you know what it's saying. But Paul's point isn't even that at all. Paul's whole point is there is a law that you know and this law is an example to you. But you, don't, but you have to be careful with how you use that law and how you read that law. And what Paul's doing here is he's paralleling that law to show you how just like the way, that, the way that that's supposed to happen is you're, you're bound to a marriage until there is a death. Just like that, he's saying, you were bound to the law until there was a death. But now, because there was a death, you can now be raised in Jesus and you are no longer bound to that law. That is what that passage is trying this to say. Happened. And guys, it's so important to see that if we, what Paul is just expressing here is there's this agony of you guys are so trapped in the law. You're trapped, and, and, and we'll show you. There's actually kind of some death in the way that you're attached to the law. And if we can let that sever, we go back to something beautiful that, that allows this, this marriage thing that happened yesterday to actually represent who Jesus is because it is, it is this extended love and grace of Jesus Christ. And if we are stuck on the law and we are not severed from the law, then we can never truly fully express who Jesus is and the love of Jesus Christ. And we need to, we need to grip that to realize why Jesus died. <laughs> so let's do that here. So, so the imagery we get is you get them passing through the, the sea. Then you get them at the foot of Mount Sinai where Moses goes up to the mountain and he meets God. 
And God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and he gives them the law. We call it the Torah. The law is 613 commandments that were given to Israel explaining the best practices for being human. It describes all sorts of issues from how you settle disputes with other people, people you're feuding with, whatever, how you prepare food, to the types of things you shouldn't partake in at all, to the sexual behaviors that they deemed unacceptable, to what's clean and what's unclean. You guys ever read it? You ever just read Leviticus? You're like, what is this? What is going on with this? What is happening here? What is he talking? Why is he telling us all this? There's, I mean, guys, this is like the incredible, beautiful plan of God and just like they, they seem like these weird rules, like, why do we have to follow this? But it's really like this, it's helpful. And, and science that we're just finding out now, I mean, there's this, there's this milk and meat restriction. Um, Chuck and I were just talking about this a couple weeks ago. This milk and meat restriction that you can't have the milk and meat together. And uh, when we were, remember, when Millie turned one, we did the yep. iron test. And her iron was like rock bottom. And I was like, what's going on? Like, is there a nutritional thing? Can we try this before we try, like, iron pills? And the doctor was like, well, I mean, I guess if she has milk, we should separate it from the iron. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, every cereal she has is infused with iron, but you use milk to make it. And she's eating beans and rice and drinking a cup of milk. Like, we're, we're working against each other. The, the calcium in the milk blocks the absorption of the iron and when you, in the meat. And so, I mean, it's just this, like, basic, simple, like, just don't eat them together. Like, that's such a weird law. We can't have milk and meat together? Why? We're, like, contaminating one with it. No, it's, this, is a, this is nutrition. This is for our bodies and our survival. Like, God is giving them, like, every bit of knowledge that, that they need. And, and some of it is definitely cultural. It's like what they need in that moment. But there's a lot of practicalness to it that we just don't see. God is actually trying to say, hey, how can you live the best life you possibly can? And so some of the laws were like about sacrifice and about forgiveness. And like, we, like, uh, like the, that article said, how can we create a culture of forgiveness and of community who love one another and live in that? Um, just there's tons of different laws. The main a good set of that is Leviticus, especially 17 through 20, is like a, a lot of a lot of laws. It's, it's good. So make your head spin. But oh yeah, I know, I know. Fun. Now, Read that, it. <laughs> that, if your head spun there and I watch this, this is kind of interesting. Um, and I, I love this stuff. You might think this is just too much, but she thinks it's too much. No, no you're good. Okay. In Hebrew, uh, each letter also has a numerical value. So, uh, so for instance, there weren't numbers in Hebrew. There's not one, two, three, four, five, six. So A, Aleph would be our A is there one. Aleph is one. Bet, B is two, if that makes sense. But if you were to take all the letters that make up the word Torah, which is the word for the law, the total number you get is actually 611. Now, 611 seems a little bit strange because it's, it's not 613, right? 613 is the law. So you're thinking, maybe that's a mistake. How did, why, why would it equal that? Are there 613 laws or are there 611? And that has actually caused a lot of the rabbis and, and people over the years to discuss. And there's actually an argument. Is it 611? Is it 613? Is it 611? Is it 613? Now, this is my favorite explanation on that. I actually think this is very fascinating. Uh, but there's actually two commands that Israel, it was always believed that actually God gave them those commands directly. And that is the, the well, what the Israelites would consider the first and second commandment in, in, in Protestantness. We, we call it, is that a word, Protestantness? 
I don't know. In Protestant, uh, the way that we read it, we read it as the introduction to the Ten Commandments and then the first commandment. But it's the introduction to the Ten Commandments says, uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Basically, it was a command to believe in God and to remember God, to remember what he did. And then, the, of course, the first commandment, which was to to the Jews was the second commandment, which says, you have no other gods before me. So they, that was actually spoken, according to the rabbis, from God directly to Israel. But there's a, there's a verse in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 33, 4, which says, Moses commanded us the Torah. So it's saying Moses gave us 611 commands. God gave us the other two directly. They're all important. And collectively, we now have this, these five books that tell us the best way to live. So that's, if that, if that makes sense. Now, um, the, that's the way the Jewish thought kind of went with that. Keep following. Don't get lost Okay. So it makes sense if you think that, see that, that the numerical value would be 611. But watch this. The Bible begins by saying what? In the beginning, God, anybody know what the next word is? Created the heavens and the earth, right? In the beginning, God created. Uh, you also get in Genesis, it says God created man in what? In his image. The numerical value for the word created, which is the word barati, is 613. Now this is very significant. See, in Genesis, right after God created man, in his image, he gave us what? He gave us, we've talked about this so many times in this series, he gave us the cultural mandate. He said, this is your job. Your job is to be fruitful and multiply, to work the earth, to subdue the earth, and to a Hebrew person, that was a huge part of, th- of that. A huge part of that was the law. That they believed we were created and we were placed on this earth to fulfill the law. That's their purpose. So to Israel, that was what they were about. They were about we are going to be, we are, we are on this earth to fulfill the law and thus the Messiah would come. If we can just keep the rules, then the Messiah would come. Sounds like the Pharisees. Right, yeah. Just like we the Pharisees. Just keep the law, all of us, much of it. Are you guys seeing this? How before the law, the 613, there was this created order. Before the, God took chaos and he made order. This is creation. And then there was sin and all of that order just (laughs) fell apart. And the law was sort of this like gathering. Let's bring it all back together. Okay? This created order thing really... I mean, this is the whole mission of God. Christopher Wright talks about it for like 700 pages. It's really fun. This is the whole mission of God, to return us back to the original intention of creation. You hear me say this a million times. This is the stuff that matters. Return to the created order. So this order that we see in the law is this demonstration of the character of God the original intention of creation. The law, it wasn't to bind us. It was to take the fallen man, the the Adam, the sin, the chaos that was created out of humanity and scoop it back together into this space of this exploding space that we could not quite keep it all together. But if we could just follow all these, this would be the created order. That's kind of the concept of that, okay? So it's stuff that... They wouldn't have had. It was like society moved forward like a thousand years or some absurd amount when the law was given. It was like all of a sudden we know how to do all these things that society was just like, 
How do we do society? <laughs> and all of a sudden there was order. Social order, marital order, family order. How do you resolve things? How do you reconcile with people? All of this. The law represents that original created order. Are you following all of that? That 613 in the law and the 613. You guys following that? Well, that's connected. I, I know this is not a classroom and you're not going to respond. Cool. Okay. So when sin messed it all up, God wanted to demonstrate all the areas that we can trust him. And then all of a sudden we're tied to the law. And there's this weird thing that happens that we're no longer bound to keep all the laws. And all of a sudden Paul's going, that doesn't really matter anymore. Don't be stuck on that. Don't be a slave to sin and sin. I mean, there's just all this crazy stuff about how the law binds us to sin. Like, there's some weird stuff happening here. So I want you to see this, that in Christ, we trust God in every area of our life. That's what it means to be in Christ. Um, there's all these arenas of who we are, and we can't really keep them straight, and we can't really do all the things that God's asking them to do in us. I mean, we all have areas in our lives, our finances, our relationships, our families. There, there are so many things that we have that we can't just really keep in order because we're broken people. Okay, so that brokenness is attached to Adam. So when we talk about the death, it's the death of Jesus is represented there, but there's this, the Adam and the new Adam. Jesus represents the new Adam. It's this baptism of this death is, let's bury the brokenness, the chaos, the sin. Adam, the old Adam, the original sin. Let's bury that. And now let's resurrect with Jesus. Okay, so there's some crazy stuff. Do we have the verse up here? Okay, yeah. likewise, you've also died to the law through the body of Christ. So by the death of Jesus, all of that Adam broken chaos stuff, we're going to just kill that. Um, don't get too caught up in the death because this is not about you dying and like this major sacrifice. That's important, but that's not what we're talking about here. Right now we're talking about the death through, through Jesus, because of what Jesus did on the cross, because, because of the death, and now the resurrection, we're going to let Jesus do the dying, and then here's the important part. We're going to join him for the resurrection. Yeah. We're going to join him for the redemption. This is not about death. This is not about marriage. This is about life. This is about resurrection. This is about when you're baptized, Adam dies, you're bound to sin. Now you're resurrected. Now you're bound to, not the law, the law is what binds you to Adam. So we're severing that, what binds us to Adam. And we're raising, we're restored. This is restoring the image bearer of God in each and every one of us. So we have to focus our lives, not on dying, but on being resurrected. The dying already happened right? We have to be allowed, we have to allow that to resurrect. I mean, like, what is the culture mandates? What? Be fruitful and multiply. They failed to do it, failed to do it. And look at what he says here. Look, let's bury, let's, let's die to the law so that what? We can bear fruit so we In can be order that. fruitful. See, see that? It's like, because of Jesus, we can finally do the things that we could never do. Here, here's the other thing about the law, guys. The law was sort of this, like, think about like a starting block, like, the law was not a starting block. The law was how to get there. It was how to get to, like, the created order, right? So it was like, let's try and draw it all back in and try and get there. The law is a way to live up to that created order. Now, I think, let's do a timeline here. 
So the law, we have the created order exploded. Now all of a sudden the law goes, here's the created order, let's try and get here. And then all of a sudden we have Jesus and we go from here and we move forward. The resurrection is how to live out the created order that you've already been given the created order. So we're at this point where we're past the law, that we're living out the things that the law were try- was trying to get us to live out. I hope that's following. So the law is how we live up to the created order. And now, because of resurrection, this is how we live out the created order. This is how we bear the image of God. This is how we have fruit for God. So this is the things that come out of your life now represent the character of God, the original intention for creation. This is who we were supposed to be, and we can now live that. We're not trying to become that. We are given that status, and now we just live it out. This is where Paul is starting from. I hope that's making sense. (laughs) Okay, so guys, every single detail, every single category, every part of the created order, all 613 parts, 613 things that God decided he's going to tell us a thing about. 613 pieces of order in creation. They all, all were demonstrated in the law, and they all matter to God. There's this idea that there are these, these different deities. I was going to read you a thing from Hirsch, but I'm not going to do it. Um, that, and I've said it before, this idea that when you go down to the river, it's this complicated spiritual matter when you don't have all 613 pieces given and trusting God with these pieces. Okay, so when you go down to the river, you pass the trees and there's these gods that you have to honor or the trees will like kill you and there's weird spiritual things. Okay, this is the polytheism, a lot of gods over a lot of categories. There's probably 613 if we really looked at it gods over all these things and it was this it's this chase it's this deep spiritual ordeal just to go down to the river and when you get to the river it's this dangerous thing that if you upset the river god the rivers will flood and you will die or they will they will dry up and you will not have water for your crops and then you have to honor the gods of the fields and everything in your life is it's so much to bear because you're constantly trying to please these dangerous deities and this concept for israel was they walk through their lives in this, just trying to please the gods. That's, the, that's where the world was. Now, we don't have that. Uh, one of my professors says, we have Walgreens, but we don't worship Walgreens. We just have Walgreens, okay? It was very serious that every Walgreens was like, God, oh, this God's going to kill me if I don't do the right thing, if God I don't please this God. Every step you took, you were just checking your, over your shoulder. And this idea that all these categories, all 613 We can now give to one God, and this God wants the best for us, okay? So it's this concept that brings the whole chaotic order into one space, the one true God, and we hear that said a lot. So this concept that we don't have to, we don't have to please the gods. There are no different deities. It's it's one God. So where does this affect? What are the areas? Like, are we going to talk about the mold under the kitchen sink? Like, where do we have to honor God? There's, there's four categories. Uh, we can put that up. So you have a spiritual, a rational, a physical, and a social. Okay, so when Eve, when the sin happened in the garden, when Eve was led by doubt of the truth of who God is and the goodness of God, 
She was alienated from God. This is that spiritual. When we're alienated, we feel far from God. We don't know if God loves us. We have doubt. We have fear. We have trust. We can't trust God with things. We need to restore that area of our lives. That's, yeah. that's the first category. Then we have the second category, the rational, the things that we contemplate. So Eve thought about it. She reflected on it. And then she decided, well, this is good for food. Yeah. She made a decision based on the rational. And I think that we need to remember to restore that area of our lives, the things that we rationalize sin. We blame someone else. Oh, I wouldn't have been tempted if they wouldn't have... Um, we have excuses. Well, I was just really desperate. All of those things are true, but we rationalize our sin in them because we're not trusting God. If you're desperate for money and you're stealing things, I mean, this is a really basic example, but if we could have trusted God to provide, then we wouldn't be stealing. Okay, so that's, that's an easy, like, robotic demonstration of that. But when we're rationalizing, we're forgetting who God is. We're telling God, you're not big enough. You're not good enough. You don't love me enough. And then we go back to this spiritual, like we feel separated from God and we feel like I'm not good enough and I have not chosen the right thing so God is going to punish me. Or we just, we make up lies. Um, Then this physical, there was this physical taking of the fruit, this physical interaction with her husband and this physical decision that they as a community made a choice that was all of humanity adam and eve all of humanity rationalized together and now we have this physical suffering okay so this is sort of the results of these categories and we have to redeem that we have to redeem the community we can redeem the broken sickness in our lives god has that for us and if it's not today and it's not tomorrow there is a day that that wholeness for all of us will come There's a day that there will be no more sickness. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. And then socially, Adam was with her. She shared mutual shame with him. How many times do we sin together and we feel a mutual shame and then we rationalize it? These human relationships and our shared sin, it's shared among all of us. We, we affect each other with our rational thoughts and we say a thing and then the other person, yeah, yeah, that's horrible. This is evil. This is, and then we're, when, we, when we get into the realm of sin, we're, we're, it's mutual, it's shared, it's communal. It's all worked together. Human life is fractured and broken and the chaos affects every single area of human life. This this is just the basic, like, how do we restore things? These are some great areas to start. These kind of generalize it all. Jealousy, violence, murder, the social decay of society, societal decay. Christopher Wright says it this way, there is no part of the human person that is unaffected by sin. You don't have a single part of you that's unaffected by sin. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Every single area, you're just, you can't. So let's kill it and let's give you grace. Let's give you the the resurrection. Are we focused 
not on dying and killing. I need to kill this sin. I need to squash it and cut it off. Often we say that. Can we focus on resurrecting with Jesus and saying, you know what? I want wholeness. I don't want to cut off the sin. That's going to happen when I resurrect with Jesus. That sin's gone because you're finding wholeness, not cutting off the brokenness yeah. and healing in that area. This is the mindset that, that Paul's trying to bring us. So that... So that, why do we do this? You may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that, this is a progression of thought, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Allow yourself to be resurrected in every single area. Redeem every single category, all 613. There's probably like 613,000, but this represented many. Um, in every single category, in order that we can bear fruit. The fruit, what's that fruit? It's the original created order. Yeah. It is the whole redemption of the whole world, starting with you, starting with the one thing that you're trying to overcome today. That thing has redemption, and that created order, the intention for your life in that area, God cares about that. Mm -hmm. He cares about all of it. There's nothing in your life that's excluded from what God cares about deeply. And he wants to be whole. There's nothing. Every category absolutely lived out of the created order will fulfill the law. Absolutely. I'm going to say it to you one other way just to make sure we get this. You know, last night, we were up till like five in the morning almost. This kept us up. And we were, we're talking about this idea and talking about this idea and talking about this idea about filling, fulfilling the law, fulfilling the law, fulfilling the law. Jesus says this. He says, hey, I fulfilled the law. It's in Matthew, in Matthew 5. It's Sermon on the Mount. He's like, he's like I, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I did come to fulfill it. Uh, there's another part when Jesus actually sums up the entire law. They say, Jesus, tell us the law. Like, what, what's, the most important, what's the most important part of the law? What's the most important commandment? He says, okay, let's sum it up like this. You love God, you love your neighbor. You love God, and you love your neighbor. And I was thinking about that because I know everybody has that question, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? It's a kind of hard question to answer. But I feel like if Jesus says that he fulfilled it and you want to find out what that means, one of the questions you need to ask yourself is, okay, how did he handle the situations that involved the law? In John 8, we all know this story. The law is brought to his attention with how to handle a woman who was caught in adultery. The law said one thing. The law said to stone her. Jesus did another thing, a very different thing. He stood between her and her accusers and he showed them, hey, that by, hey, if you're going to measure it based on this law, then you all deserve to be stoned. Do you really want that to be the measuring stick by which we judge the world? Because it's also going to be how you judge yourself. And the religious leaders, they wanted to uphold the law, but they all ended up walking away instead because they didn't want to get stoned. Jesus fulfilled it. And it was through love. But what was going on with those religious leaders was the letter of the law was being used as a weapon to bring pain to somebody else's life. In Mark 3, you get another situation, sort of like that, a man with a withered hand, and it's the Sabbath day. And Jesus says, everybody's watching Jesus, hey, are you going to actually heal this guy with a withered hand? Because the law says you can't do that on the Sabbath day. They're all watching him. You're going to keep the law, or you're going to break the law. 
actually, I'm going to fulfill the law. I'm going to do the loving thing. I'm going to act in love. And he healed the man. And the religious people went nuts. They're so mad about this. Listen, it is very, very clear from the Bible. You, you read the New Testament. You read the way Jesus interacted with people. It is very, very, very clear that sometimes following the law can be the very thing that gets in the way of fulfilling the law. And can be the very thing keeping you from being that light that you were created to be. The light that Israel, they think that this law is how you're going to be the light to the world. That's their goal, but they couldn't keep any of it. It's impossible to bear the fruit for God when you're bound to a law that you cannot keep. Because when you're bound by it, you will bind others to it. You could even take this passage in Romans 7 that we just read. When Paul talks about how a person is bound to their husband. And you could make that verse about a law that he is referencing. And you could use it as a weapon to call someone out on adultery. And say if you, you're an adulterer if you've ever been divorced. You can, you can weaponize that passage in that way. People do that all the time. But they, what they do is they turn the letter of the law into a weapon. And they miss the spirit of the law which is what Paul is saying. That's what Paul's going to get into in the next two verses. We're going to touch on it next week. How we actually, we serve the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. And the spirit of the law is love. The spirit of the law is what's going on underneath the surface. The spirit of the law is how can we do the right thing by the people while at the same time still bringing honor to God. Let's be a community of people who live by the spirit of the law. Who live by the grace that we've been shown in our own lives because you've been shown more grace than you'll ever be able to give. I can guarantee you that. I've been shown more grace than, I've ever been, than I'll ever be able to give. Let's live by resurrection, not death. Yeah. The death happened. It already died. He already died for us. Jesus died for everything that you're battling. Yeah. Live in his resurrection. Resurrection. Let's ask for that every single day when you're saying, this is broken. Don't ask for it to be cut off. Ask for it to be resurrected and given new life. God created you. He created this world. He created your body. He created your organs. He can make them all over again. Yeah. And if you don't believe that, you have trust issues with God. Start to trust him with the little things. Start to trust him with knowledge for how to discipline your children or how to take care of. I had a friend tell me one time, we had a burn and God said cream cheese. So she put cream cheese on the burn. God told her to put cream cheese on the burn and it, it, it stopped the skin from burning. There's just little nuggets of knowledge in every area of your life. He cares and he wants to restore it. Not cut out the broken, but bring life to the death that's in you, the dead broken parts. Your marriage, your family, your kitchen sink and the mold underneath it. It's all in there. All the pieces, all 613. Will you give them to him today? Will you start to trust him with every single category? Because he cares and he wants to redeem it and he wants to resurrect and bring new life. Yes. Let's pray for you. Jesus, we just lift up this body of believers, this body of people, Father God, for those of you who maybe don't know Jesus yet, Lord. Let me, we all, first of all, make you Lord of our lives, let you invite you into our lives, not, not just so that we can be controlled or we can control others, especially not so we can control others. We don't want to do that, God, but Lord, so that we can learn how to love others well, 
that we can trust you with our brokenness, trust you in the times that we can't figure it out on our own. That's what you're here for. That's what you do. That's what you promise us. And right now, Father God, I just pray, Lord, that we would be people of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would fill our church and that we would have wisdom to know how to handle the situations that aren't always easy, that aren't always black and white, Lord. Like, Lord, we live in a very gray world, a world where we have to navigate good and evil and we have to figure out what's right and what's wrong. God, give us grace to do that and give us wisdom to do that in such a way that it always errs on the side of love and always points people to you, no matter what it is, God, whether something they're doing is right or that they're doing is wrong, Lord, let what we do show them Jesus. That is our prayer. And we just pray that anointing over our church and ask for that, God, that you would fill us in that way that we would be people who champion people, that we would be people who love people, that we would be people who, because of our lives, they see Jesus, not the law. Lord, we understand the law was perfect. We get it, but we're not. Jesus is. Thank you, Jesus, that you were able to keep that law. Thank you, Jesus, that you were able to fulfill it. We love you.